Tune in and cry it out with me, DJ Susie. I got a special treat for you this evening. A young man that you all know is Joe the Policeman from the What's Going Down episode of That's My Mama. So if you get a win tonight, that would breed confidence going into those next four games against teams in the silver spots beside you in the table. Where you from, Jim? Ireland. I like your accent. It's tough. I want to learn how to talk like that. But ask your question again. I was too much listening to your accent. Yeah, no problem, man. Where you from, Jim? Ireland. I like your accent. Where you from, Jim? Ireland. I like your accent. But where in New York can one find a woman with grace, elegance, taste, and culture? A woman suitable for a king. Queens. My name is Peaches, and I'm the best. All the DJs want to feel my breath. The way you shake a man's hand determines at that spot how interested you really are to be there. It was big for me. Not a death grip handshake, a sincere handshake. Then you know if all hell breaks loose in the next five seconds from that handshake and you turn and you have to face something coming, you've got a partner. Female or male, you got someone you can count on. And people might go, you don't know that from a handshake. Amen. That's you. Me? I'll bet my life on it. what they call a demonstration tape. Just let your soul go. Just let it shine through. Just let your soul Feeling oh so silky smooth. Just let it shine through. Just let your soul go. Ask your question again. I was too much listening to your accent. Out in the street, they call it Winslow T. Broadcast Booth in appropriately cold for February, Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm John Reed. You're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. And this is Race to the Bottom, baby. Listen to a little Ike Quebec. Off of his album, 
Bossa Nova Soul Samba. This is it. Lloro tu despedida. My opening monologue, as always, is sponsored by Winslow Tea, and I'm drinking it right now. And I've got I've got witnesses here. Huh. Mm. Mm. <sighs> so I, I wanted to chug. I wanted to chug so bad, but I gotta save save a little bit. Thank you. Uh, please hashtag your tea drinking experiences and your listening experiences with hashtag how you know to steep into the conversation. We've got some some guests who are just raring to go and here in the studio. And I'm so glad that they are with us, and I will introduce them shortly. But, but uh, you know, Winslow, Winslow calls the shots here, and, and they demand an opening monologue. Uh, and oh, an opening monologue I will give. How about that mashup? That was from a year ago, uh, basically today. We heard from... Coming to America, and uh, J- Randy Watson, and something that people don't talk about enough about Randy Watson is that he, <laughs> he was on uh, the what, "What's Going Down" episode of "That's My Mama." Um, you know, and people are wondering what kind of what kind of show are we going to have today? And I'll tell you what kind of show we're going to have today. It's going to be uh, or, or what style of show? It's going to be Gangnam Style today. Just letting you know. Open Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style. Oh yeah. Who else we hear from? We heard from uh Ant. Gotta see if you guys know Ant Anthony Edwards. Not the actor, but the, the basketball player. He's kind of my favorite just from this one clip that I know my, my wife loves hearing. Um Where are you from, Jim? Ireland. I like your accent. It's tough. Can you repeat the question? I was too busy listening to your accent. That happens to me sometimes. I'm too busy listening to people's accent when they say uh, the bathroom, stuff like that. Um, we heard from uh, Peaches, who uh, who's who's trying to get a date with uh, Hakeem, and uh, the uh, the twins actually were were the the twins were both trying to date uh, uh, Eddie Murphy's character in the movie. I guess that that was the you get you get. Uh, Double, double your pleasure, double your fun. Sorry, that's just a double mint gum. Uh, they add the twins and they add. I'm not, I'm not trying to be uh, disgusting at at um, ten o eight in the morning. It's a family show. But I, I, this is one of my favorite things that I've ever done, though. Is and that's why I, I had to replay this mashup. In addition to the fact that I am exhausted. And but I I need you know what I need today I need a little intestinal fortitude that's cool when people think they're uh, brilliant by saying 
intestinal fortitude instead of guts. Is that like the PC version of, of guts, intestinal fortitude? I'll, I'll ask my guests what they think. But I, uh, I, so George Martin was the, uh, in, in many, um, in many people's book, there was the fifth, uh, he was the fifth Beatle. Some people think it was uh, Billy Preston. Some people think it was Pete Best. But for my money, it was George Martin, their, their producer, the guy who, who held it down. Um, and you see how, how uh, untethered they became uh, when, uh, in the Let It Be sessions without George Martin at the helm. Started hanging out with, uh, who's that guy who stole all their money? He's brilliant. That was great when, when John was just like going on and on about this con man. He sees through us. He knows exactly what we want. Anyway, George Martin, there's the in the in my life, the the that little harpsichord solo, that's not a harpsichord solo. That's George Martin playing this Bach-esque uh thing on the piano that they sped up to make it sound like a harpsichord. I found the original and I put that over I guess it's Peach's sister, who I guess we, we don't know who what her name is cream potentially she's she's beatboxing and and over that i put i put george martin rocking the piano solo to uh in my life one of the greats when you shake a man's hand it shouldn't be a death grip should that's from uh, garth brooks if you haven't watched that kind of they could they should have called that documentary unhinged the the Garth Brooks story. It's a two-parter on Netflix. I highly recommend it, even if you're not a Garth Brooks guy. Watch that in uh, this time last year in in uh, Chicago when it was I we were experiencing more snow than I've ever experienced in my life, up to your knees. Somebody's honking outside. I'm gonna go out there and. Uh, and Garth also let us know that a demo is a demonstration tape, which I was thankful for. <sighs> you guys watched the Kanye doc? I watched it. Watched the first. As, as somebody who came to Kanye's defense for about a decade when anybody had anything bad to say about him, I loved him. Uh, but... When the MAGA stuff happened, I, I I jumped off that train. But man, it 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 feels good to reconnect with the old Kanye. Sad, it's sad, but it's well done. And um, my wife didn't want to watch it because you know of who Kanye has become. But I just put it on, even though she said, uh, "Yeah, I don't want to watch that." And after about five minutes, uh, she was hooked. She keeps asking when the next one's coming on. So. You know, maybe it'll become a part of your life like Wordle, which I still have not uh, figured out. But from what I understand, it this is for people who have like really good vocab uh, of five letter words. Um, if you have like a encyclopedic, you have to be good at five letter words, right? I don't know. Don't explain to me how to play it. I'm trying to, I'm still trying to, <laughs> every, every day I go on, I just 
try to figure out the rules. I start hitting buttons and I don't get it. But what I do get is is film. The genre of of film. I'm a, I'm I'm an expert. No, I'm I'm kidding, but I do have some some friends. I have friends, guys. I know it doesn't seem like it sometimes. Why am I being like self-deprecating like like that? That's not a good look. One last thing on the on the uh, monologue, and then I'll introduce my friends. I got a lot of pushback on my uh, Winter Olympics hot takes from last week. Look, I'm not trying to say. Listener Julian was was giving me the business, saying I'm anti curling and all this stuff. Rewind the tape, guys. I'm not anti-Winter Olympics. I'm just saying that I don't think that the people competing in these games are necessarily the the best possible contestants. Be- they're just the only people who have tried these sports. Okay? Let's see what, what uh, Eric and Dave have to say about this. Let's see. Let's, let's see if these microphones work. You guys... I, you guys know Eric and Dave. Dave came on to talk about um, infantilization of, of our culture. Great episode. And let's see if his mic works. Hello, hello. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Sounding good. How's it going? I'm good, man. How are you? You're you're, you're quite punchy this week. You're, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's been a long week. Yeah. I'm kind of, I'm kind of flying uh, with my seatbelt off. Is that an expression? <laughs> no. <laughs> so I think by the seat of your pants might have been yeah. what you're looking for. Yeah, there we go. Seatbelt notwithstanding. <laughs> yeah. I guess it doesn't. Well, they do say I'm like, I we're on takeoff and I have my seatbelt off. Right. And the stewardess is like, sir. Did you see the Did you see the plane landing uh, stuff from Heathrow yesterday? Um, Sully's back in the news. <laughs> <laughs> There's an incredible video of uh, planes trying to land at an incredibly windy Heathrow airport and like mm. soccer commentary over it. Like, he's almost got it. Oh, Is wow. it going down? It's really good. I uh, highly recommend it. <laughs> I got to put that in the mashup. Um, and let's see if this, if Mike 4 is the one I need for, for my friend Eric. Check. Oh, my goodness. I think it's very fitting that Dave came on your show to talk about the infantilization of society, and I, <laughs> and I talked about baseball. <laughs> well, you'll also know Eric's voice from the um, Oscar Spectacular, and, and he's going to be uh, back in the building for, for that in about a, a month. We were just talking about how we're going to watch all these uh, these 10 movies, right? Yeah, we got my wife and I have four to go. We'll be... We'll be back again on the on the show. Looking forward to it. But uh, yeah, it's been a it's a interesting slate of movies. We've enjoyed a lot of them. Yeah, I, I we have like seven to go. Yeah, we're behind you. How yeah. many are there now? Is it is it ten? Ten. 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 Goodness me! Wow. That's I remember when there were what four, <laughs> four or five, four or yeah. five, yeah. right? Yeah, and something like American Beauty won every year, and it was yeah. like, oh, hmm. Crash, <laughs> our, our favorite, our Crash. favorite. It's ten, and the Oscars missed a big one, which we'll talk about today. That's true. So listener Julian says, push back. I bet I was the only one. No, Julian, you're just a representative of, of thousands of people who <laughs> contacted me about my Winter Olympics. Um, you're talking about curling, aren't you? Yeah. 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 Um, also, my mother-in-law uh, pointed out that I was calling the skeleton uh, Skeletor. <laughs> I was doing that on purpose. Come on, guys. That's, that was an uh, intentional malapropism. 
the it's good work. The need for luge and double luge <laughs> and skeleton is interesting. Yes, and the single bobsled. Yeah, which mono, is mono, 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 mono bob. Mono bob. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I love the I love the Winter Olympics. Somebody said that double luge started as a joke, and then somebody just took it too far and decided yeah. to do it. <laughs> I for think I for one think there are for, with more sports, we should see what happens if we pile people on top of each other. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> I think that's like, we should just see what how that works out. So I'm we've been watching the Winter Olympics. My only point was, do, is this like a crazy thing to say? Like, so r- people, if you watch like track in the Summer Olympics. The people, everyone in the world has tried to run at some t- some point, <laughs> right? Sure. So you know that the people who are running in the Olympics, are pri- that's a good sample size of all human beings and their ability to run, right? Fair. Um, skeleton, uh, I don't think is, there might be somebody who'd be amazing at skeleton, but they have, haven't heard of it, Right. So it's a smaller sample size. It's, it, yeah, I don't think it's accurate. We might, we, in other words, we might be omitting the world's best skeleton. Exactly, there because the sample size just isn't large enough. What do you think about that, Eric? As yeah. our sports uh, expert, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, they they wouldn't know that they're good at it either. <laughs> <laughs> so, I you know, I think to a certain extent, like, good on these people for saying, like, oh, that looks fun. I'm going to try yeah. that. Isn't this a version of the argument that Americans make about soccer and why we're no good at soccer? It's like, we, oh, well, we all of our good athletes do other things. Oh, uh, yeah. You know? Listen, yeah. didn't Lolo Jones go from uh, track running to running at the back of a bobsled and then okay. jumping into it? Yeah. So there's some crossover. Maybe. Well, and, and my point was that this is why we love the Jamaican bobsled team so much. It's because it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's that... Um, what I think you know, I, what, you, I think I know what you're so you're talking about the it's yes I get that but I also to me it's why I love the Winter Olympics is like there are there's an aspect of these people who just decided to they clearly just decided to try something yeah. like the guys that do and the and the women that do the slope style yeah where they're like skiing but then they're also doing backflips and spins it's like everybody who has skied has had that point in mm-hmm. their childhood where they take a jump and they're like. They get enough air on the jump where they're deciding, am I going to do something crazy yeah. or am I going to like just kind of spread my legs a little bit and make it look like, you know, I'm flying. Mm-hmm. And these are all people who went, I might try a flip. Yeah. And then they landed it and then they, you know, so like I think good on these people who are who clearly took something that is a borderline activity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and have pushed it to do something that's a little bit more exciting and a that's, little bit more gangnam style yeah. well, i love the winter Olympics. you got slope style you got gangnam <laughs> style you got, you got all kinds of events um yeah so today we're, we're not talking about that though that that was the the, the winter olympics are, are wrapping down winding down wrapping up wrapping up winding <laughs> down my brain is scrambled fog um, yeah, but I'm getting that COVID brain fog is, is, uh, uh, Dan, what is it coming in on little cat feet over the harbor and city? <laughs> <laughs> what is that? Carl, Carl yeah. Sandberg's fog, oh, but sure. about COVID brain fog. Sure, yeah. But right? you're, this isn't long COVID yet for you. This is like, this is mid COVID. Yeah. <laughs> Your COVID is so mid bro. <laughs> yeah. We're talking about three movies today and we just... Uh, we we talked about this during the as as the mashup was playing 
we, we kind of, there was a late audible that we called, right? We're, we're going full spoilers. So if you are waiting to, to watch Pig, if you haven't gotten around to watch Pig yet. First of all, how dare you? Which one? What? No, not you. How dare oh. you have not oh, watched Pig? Oh, yeah. How there dare you have not watched, watched Pig? Pig. He's like, yeah. which of the things I said? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if you haven't watched the French Dispatch yet, um, and you you don't want to spoil the incredibly intricate plot of uh, that movie, um, or uh, being the Ricardos, also one. I don't think these movies. Pig might right. be the most spoilable. Well, especially I, since being the Ricardos is a, a true story. Yeah. Right? So you, you know how that happened, or you should know how that happened. It's like. Th- yeah. um, What's the one about? It's called Lincoln, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. There's a movie called Lincoln. Yeah. Where about him writing the Thirteenth Amendment? It's uh, like, yeah. is it going to pass? <laughs> well, that's. I I always give my mom a hard time. Uh, what was the 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 American American Sniper? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where like we were in line to get into the theater. And she said something to me about the fact that he dies. Wow. And I was like, now we're spoiling other movies. Yeah. And I was I like, know. Mom. She was like, this is a real thing. It happened. Everybody knows it happened. I was like, but I didn't pay attention to this news story. Yeah, I would say I would say, uh, Pig is the only one that you really need to worry about getting actually spoiled. Yes. Because there is some actual plot and interesting things that happen. So maybe we'll talk about, uh, maybe if you want to go get some Winslow tea, we'll do Pig first. And then you can come back. Let's see. This, this is... Uh, the three of us are, are teachers. Sometimes you got to look at the clock and you got to figure out your game plan. Um, so we basically have thirty minutes. So we'll do 10, 10 minutes on each. Um, yeah, that sounds sure. good. So let's talk about um, for for people who don't want a pig spoiler. And this is the movie. It's a first time director, right? Yes, a first time director that uh, Eric and I noticed uh, even well after the movie had come out had like two hundred followers on Twitter, <laughs> which is like. Kind of, kind of wild. I, mess- I messaged him. Yeah, really. And told him how much I enjoyed the movie and was excited for uh, what was next. And he wrote back, "Very nice, dude. Yeah, um, nice." And yeah, um, um, Eric, you got to make a, more of a decision on that microphone. You're kind of like uh, I can't tell whether to turn you up or down. I'm spinning around in, in, this, <laughs> in this chair. I just I can't sit still. Just. Do you want to? Do you want to intro, uh, intro the preconceptions angle? That we're going oh, to yes. take here. Thank you. Nope. I, I need a little help today. <laughs> so, um, so we're talking about these three movies: Pig, being the Ricardos, and and uh, French Dispatch. French Di- French Dispatch, uh, you know, auteured by Wes Anderson, being the Ricardos, directed by um, uh, Walk and Talk, and what, Aaron, Sorkin. Aaron, Sorkin. Aaron Sorkin, and written by, and written by. And, yeah. written by. and then Pig is just I, another. Movie where you would you would say, "Oh my God, this is Nicolas Cage in a movie about a pig." I think it's a Nicolas Cage thing, yeah. And in, in the in the same way that Sorkin and Wes Anderson are figured for the other two, that yeah. with all due respect to the creative mind behind it, who is excellent, you know, it's it's a sort of Nicolas yeah. Cage preconception. Yeah. So we're talking about preconceptions when when you're like uh, flipping through the 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 interface of, of Netflix or Hulu, and you're like, "Oh my God, what is this?" Right. I guess uh, if if you don't know. Uh, that it's a Wes Anderson movie, you can tell by the poster with 45 people on it. And the colors. It's yeah, the colors. and the colors. the colors. And the font. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to talk about our preconceptions about these these filmmakers and, and actors and stuff. So that's the frame framework uh, with which you're, we're connecting these three. Um, I'm going to shut up. Can somebody tell, tell us about... Uh, first, just give us the thumbnail sketch of Pig... 
And uh, Dave, you're like right, the I'm pig, pig guy. <laughs> I'm, I'm a pig stan. Um, all right. So Pig, starring Nicolas Cage. And I realized last night the son from Hereditary, um, which is a, another super scary movie. Not the pig is scary. Uh, but anyway, basically, Nicolas Cage uh, plays a um, the owner of a, a truffle pig who lives out in the woods by himself. And he um uses the pig to you know find truffles and sells them to restaurants it's in the pacific northwest outside of portland and um the basic thread of the story is that you know he uh he's sort of he's definitely a recluse lives by himself his only contact with the civilized world is this you know selling truffles and things and as the movie unfolds again spoilers um you realize that he is this uh was uh, this once famous chef uh like you know three-star michelin chef um who was cast out or sent or driven out of the industry by a number of things, including uh, the nature of the industry itself, but also some personal tragedy. And um, and the drama of the story is that within the first 10 minutes, uh, his pig gets captured um, and taken away. Um, and he has a very uh, close relationship with it. And uh, the story kind of um, basically is about him trying to get the pig back and going into Portland and kind of teaming up in an unlikely fashion with this um this this kid who is is basically his truffle seller um and is you know drives a lamborghini and is very sort of like young and um kind of douchey and <laughs> um but it's so it sort of it sort of turns into kind of a buddy buddy story um about them trying to get his pig back and um ends with the, the it turns out the pig got killed in the end which mm-hmm. is which we can talk about but um the, the pig had been dead all along um you know it once it once it got taken that was that and um it ends up being a, you know the story of his um re-engagement with the, the the food industry and cooking and um there's this quite poignant moment at the end where he makes an he cooks an important meal with the kids help and um i think it, on the you know i would to get into the preconceptions thing i would say you know Nicholas Cage is this sort of at this stage in his career is this is I think a, almost a caricature of himself. You know, you think of him in ridiculous things and think about ridiculous premises and setups and movies and um, and so I think what struck me about this movie most was that it feels like yet another ridiculous Nicholas Cage premise. You know, small super small budget movie. You know, you see Nicholas Cage as a sort of grizzled, bloodied truffle farmer, and you're like, oh. This is going to be in no way, shape, or form remarkable, but a lot of fun. You know, it's a crisp 90 minutes. You know, let's do it. Um, and I, for one, uh, I watched, I rewatched it again last night, and I think it is one of my favorite movies of the year. It is uh, oddly poetic and poignant. Um, it doesn't profess to be about food initially, but it, it has this sort of complex thing to say about the relationship between food and family and people and loss and um and it's all through the lens of this pig <laughs> you know this guy's relationship with this pig and so i think it was very deceptive and that if if you have a preconception about nicholas cage being kind of an unserious person at this stage in his life this will this will really undo that for you and that i mean he has a movie coming out that also ties into the preconceptions where like he plays himself and somebody is nicholas cage plays himself and somebody is like um using nicholas cage to i don't r- remember the full plot but like trying to use the the crazy aspect of Nicolas Cage to you know wrap him up in this larger kind of like you know thrillery story but he's playing into the like oh I'm Nicolas Cage and I'm a little bit unhinged mm-hmm. in that movie so I think you know to Dave's point he he lean he he is knowledgeable of it and leans into it and I think the director of this movie 
um, whose name is Michael Sarnowski, also leans into that in a way that like there are so many beats in this movie that are basically John Wick with a pig, mm-hmm. <laughs> except mm-hmm. instead of choosing the violent response, he chooses the action that would be more kind of like that's more human and emotional, right? So it's, oh, my beloved animal was taken. I'm going to go search for, you know, vengeance. And Nicolas Cage is very clearly like his actions and his mannerisms and even the dialogue suggest that this is going to be like a a quest of vengeance Mm. and he's going to hurt whoever gets in his way. But at every single moment where he could choose that kind of John Wick violent path, instead he chooses something that's more about like connecting or more to Dave's point about like, you know, the about food or growth or something like that. So I think like the director also is playing into our preconceptions of like what we think the movie is going to be based on mm. the plot and the the actor that he's cast in it. And then using those preconceptions against us, but also kind of to further the movie mm-hmm. because the movie then surprises Right. And everybody watches a movie and in their head, whether they say it out loud or not, they're kind of guessing where it's going to go. Right. This is what's going to happen. This is this. And when when it takes a turn, that's not that. But then is also a good decision to not do that. Then you're like, oh, it's almost like you've given a little bit more respect in your head to that person in that film. And I think this does it consistently throughout. Listener Colette says that uh, that I guess that movie's called The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Which the uh, the, the Nic- yeah. upcoming Nicholas Cage thing? <laughs> so it sounds like it's kind of like a being John Malkovich esque uh, meta kind of. I, I got that vibe from the yeah. uh, from the previews. Yeah. The, other, the other thing I was going to say about um, what the approach the director's approach to Pig with Nicholas Cage is like it almost seems to uh, like take advantage of the para like the paratext around a movie, the culture around a movie. You know, if if you think about the way in which whether it's on Reddit or social media, you know, things are. Are consumed in this sort of social media ecosphere, right? Um, it it almost folds that into the drama of the story. It relies on the fact that you are expecting mm-hmm. Nicolas Cage to be a certain thing, and and builds that into the dramatic beats of the story, like mm-hmm. Eric was saying, which is which is a new thing. You know, you didn't that the, the way that you account for what you know people will expect of a particular actor in mm-hmm. your in your story to build that into the the mm-hmm. beats of the film is that, I mean, that's, that's a, an interesting thing to do. So, um, yeah, Dave talked about how much he loved this movie for months. Now, Mark Marin uh, also talked about how he was surprised by it and loved it. So I, I was kind of on the, um, thing where I was, it was built up to me maybe. So, um, I'll, I'll play devil's advocate and talk about things that uh, bothered me about the movie. Yeah. One, I guess it was symbolic, but uh, so he go, they go to the, well, they go to this fight club thing yeah. There's, <laughs> where I guess I would, I was a, uh, you know, a cook in New York and knew a lot of chefs. I don't know about the underground uh, fight club aspect. It's because people don't talk about it. <laughs> it's the first rule. The first rule of that fight. So he goes and to like prove himself, he gets the crap. But this isn't even a fight club. It's basically like if you can uh, get your ass kicked for like two minutes and not not lose consciousness, you win. I guess is the rules. You win the money. Yeah. They don't really explain. No, the, I, I understood it as it's for it's for restaurant industry people to blow off steam uh, by paying amounts of money to punch 
punch other okay. restaurant people. Yeah. Okay. But the, but then there's a betting aspect too, where people are. I think they're betting on whether they're yes. going to lose consciousness, right, or something like that, yeah. or how long you can withstand being beaten. So this and, grizzled Nick Cage gets gets uh, his ass whooped and has blood all over his beard and dirty face for the entire movie. Does he never washes. And he never yeah. washes it off until the end. And I, you know, I guess that's symbolic. It seemed important. But I could not. Um, I really, really wanted him to wash the blood off of his face for the entire movie, and it really, bo- it really like took me out of the, the thing that he he had other things. Up. <laughs> all right, and I, yeah, that's that scene is was particularly um, it was a little it was a little weird, but I also thought that you know the a the in the plot context, right? He's using he gets in there because he's using. Um, that as an opportunity to get information because yes. the guy who runs the fight club mm-hmm. is in somehow some way kind of like knowledgeable of all things restaurant yeah. industry and you can tell because um, they both wear the gloves without the uh, fingers yeah. <laughs> the fingerless yeah. gloves right mm-hmm. yeah. um and so he uh so there's a there's a reason behind that and then i thought also like he puts his name he mm-hmm. writes his name on the board, and so people know who he is, and then they get really excited to punch him in the face, yeah. which I think may be because, A, he's he's incredibly famous and was like this recluse, but also potentially these are all restaurant industry mm-hmm. workers, and he's like a three-star Michelin chef, and so there's probably some aspect of like the pretension of, yeah. of the chefs around it. To, and to me, that led into what I thought was the best scene in the movie, where he goes to the restaurant... Um, and talks to, I guess, a guy who had been a line cook for him or a sous chef for him, and now he uh, works in the like hottest restaurant in Portland or whatever. And this is where essentially he hears the pig has been stolen to give truffles to this um, restaurant, which has a whole you know menu for the season set around truffles. And that's where you get to Dave's point. Like, there's this dialogue in the scene that's all about kind of like the you know, the way that these chefs give up their actual dreams and the the things that actually got them to love food to cook these menus Mm -hmm. that they think will be, you know, trendy in the larger public and get people to come in. But as Nicolas Cage points out, like the the diners then don't care about you. They're not here because they care about you and your vision and your food. They want to just check it off the box to say they ate here. So you're sacrificing your entire dream, your dreams to please people that don't really care about your dreams. And I thought it was this like incredibly like poignant and also just really like philosophical uh, scene buried in this movie about mm-hmm. like what I thought was going to be a bloody hunt for a truffle pig. <laughs> <laughs> and you're kind of like, oh, damn, that, yeah, that, uh, and especially living in New York City where that whole food industry thing is on yeah. another level too, you, you really feel that. So, yeah, th- thank you for leading to me to my other uh, kind of quibble about it. I totally get that, and I appreciated it in one way, but there was this kind of, like, high-low uh, distinction between, like, what what's real cooking, what's frou-frou BS, you know, and that was a lot of that scene, right? Um, and Nicolas Cage, in a way, is is res- res- uh, resembling the uh, side of more soulful uh, kind of food, Um but he also has a tr- – and, and I guess there's that dichotomy in the fact that you have these truffles, which are, are these delicacies that are sniffed out by a disgusting pig, right? Right, or, from the ground. From the ground, right? But um, I couldn't tell 
you know, and he goes when he goes to that restaurant, you know, there's a lot of the like the trappings of like the foam and the deconstructed stuff that they're kind of making fun of. But still, um, when he makes his uh, exquisite meal, it's still like this super old bottle of wine, this uh, like quail or whatever that uh, that pheasant that he's cooking. Like it's it's still elevated. It's not like he's cooking like you know, mac and cheese, you know, <laughs> it's still like he's still in that world. And maybe the way that you said it, Eric, it's it's not so much the high and low. It's like, are you putting yourself into the food yeah. well, and not just. And I think it's food. His his issue at the fine dining restaurant is it's food divorced from meaning. Right. Yeah. Or it's fo- it's food with me with new meaning sort of imposed on it. Right. You know, we've deconstructed it. We've done this. It's smoked. It's all, you know, it's it's attempting to imbue the food with false meaning. Yeah. Which when he ends up cooking the meal at the end, which, you know, is meat and potatoes and bread and wine, however fancy they are, is it's all about meaning. Right. I mean, it is that food is is rhetorical you know he's yeah. trying to do it to get the guy to give up the location well he has right. this like secret uh, it's like his superpower to almost create these madeline moments for yeah. for people and that's what he's done to the to the his antagonist who right. stole the pig and he wants to like bring him back to his his conscience right because the, the the context of that last scene is that this guy has had went to nicholas cage's restaurant back when nicholas cage was had his stuff together and was cooking and had this meal with his wife and it was all they ever talked about right the the antagonist is the father of the buddy that nicholas cage is kind of around on the trip with so this kid mentions like my parents basically were fighting all the time this is the one thing that they that they always talked about was this meal the wife has died i think was no, the, she's on life support oh she's on life support oh, yeah. right, in the in the hospital um and so nicholas cage cooks this meal to make the father remember right the this this time with his wife that was happy and not and kind of chip away the mm-hmm. anger that has you know filled him so th- there's meaning behind that as well i think i think the most unrealistic part of the movie is that nicholas cage claims to remember every meal he's ever cooked <laughs> for every diner that ever came and you're like mm-hmm. all right fine yeah. but but yeah there there's it's a it might be an elevated dish but it's the meaning behind yeah. the food that they're eating um i want i want to say one more thing and this might transition us to our next movie too mm-hmm. but um it's a really quiet film, yeah. right? If you look at the amount of dialogue that is in it, just, you know, there is so much space between the things that are said to each other and and the dialogue itself and just the amount of words in the movie. It's an incredibly quiet movie. Um, and rewatching it again last night, that that really um, that really struck me just as a, in, in terms of letting the letting the thing breathe and giving it some space to, to do this kind of character growth that Eric was talking about. Mm-hmm. I was really struck by just how, um, spare it is yeah. in some ways. Are you saying Wes Anderson isn't quiet? <laughs> I, mean, I may, may not have been seeking transition. I'm just <laughs> seeking transition. I like that. Um, so, Wes Anderson, you want to do this the thumbnail for us of this one, Eric? Sure. Um, so, the movie, The French Dispatch, is actually set up as kind of like a visual series of short stories. Um, that's the premise is that there is a magazine called The French Dispatch which is a offshoot of a Kansas newspaper, yeah. right? Um, and so the, the movie is set up as an issue of the French Dispatch, and every vignette in the movie is essentially an article that was in the French Dispatch. So they're all separate stories. 
that are not really connected at all, except for the fact that the people who wrote the stories um, all write for and are then characters in these vignettes as they are crafting the stories, write for the same magazine. So there are bookend scenes where they're um, at the magazine and the together the magazine is written uh, or is edited by Bill Murray because Bill Murray's in every Wes Anderson thing. Um, and so I think, you know, to, to the point we made earlier about the lack of plot, right? Each story is its own little subsequent or it's little um, isolated mm-hmm. thing. And I know Dave is going to rail against this movie because he <laughs> mm-hmm. doesn't like Wes Anderson. And I've, argued with Dave about Wes Anderson for a long time. I mean, I, I really like a lot of Wes Anderson films. I love the, vi- I love the visual aesthetic that I know Dave hates. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the fact that I turn it on. I know it's a Wes Anderson thing. I like the colors, you know, there's like Instagram accounts dedicated to like the way that he, he shoots and frames buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always kind of found his movies really engaging. And I think the reason I find them engaging is that, the quirk of his storytelling is always matched by this kind of heart um, that I think is in a lot of these films because the characters are these kind of like, they're like eccentric and offbeat, but there's something really nice about their relationships. And I think because this was a series of vignettes and not a larger story, I felt none of that, Mm. the heart of these stories and these characters. I felt like it was all quirk and all of the pretension of Wes Anderson and none of the like emotional aspects of the storytelling. So there are some interesting beats and there's mm-hmm. some interesting performances. I mean, when you have like Francis McDormand and Benicio del Toro, Jeffrey Wright, Jeffrey Wright and good old Timothy Chalamet. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, there are really good performers in here, but I just felt like there was nothing that, that gripped me and held me into mm-hmm. the story. It was like some cool moments and the rest of it was, it didn't it didn't hit i didn't love it as much as i wanted to i felt the same way unfortunately and i've i yeah i wes anderson when i saw royal tenenbaums in the movie theater i i said oh my god this how did somebody get inside my head and make this movie i'd never seen uh a movie that kind of mapped to my sense of humor, um, I really cared about the characters. Um, I went back and watched Bottle Rocket and Rushmore. Um, I'm a huge proponent of Darjeeling Limited. I know that a lot of that's kind of a sleeper one, but I think that that is a gorgeous movie. Um, my favorite aspects, I do, I am kind of comforted by the visual aesthetic, but as time has worn on, I feel like he's kind of fallen in love with with his gotten high on his own supply in like a George Lucasy kind of way where he <laughs> has has um he doesn't care about human emotion or interaction in, in a way that he used to. Listen, Biggie said never get high on your own supply. <laughs> he uh he was um he was right about that. Yeah. And I just yeah, I I watched this uh movie during the height of my uh bout with COVID and I had to um stop it. Uh, multiple times just to kind of take <laughs> take a break um, before Dave gets into his the rant I know he's <laughs> mulling in his head I, I think this is another interesting aspect of like the people creating the work being aware of the preconceptions yes. around the work which we talked about with Nicolas Cage before but I think Wes Anderson knows what people think of 
of him, of yeah. his films, of what he does. And maybe there is a certain extent. Uh, we don't know him. So this is all utter yeah. speculation of just watching the films. Maybe there is like, you know, a little bit of he really enjoys doing that stuff. A lot of people respond to it. So he gives, he dives mm-hmm. in more. Or maybe it's on he understands the pushback to it. And so he doubles down on like, this is what I do. And I think there's a lot of aspects of that where, where, where it works. Um, and this one, Maybe just like, you know, sometimes it doesn't. I, and I don't begrudge somebody for continuing to do the thing that they like yeah. doing. But sometimes it's it's not going to hit. Well, I, f- I, I felt like that with Budapest Hotel um, and uh, all the – it's just too many characters. It's too he's, – he's also in love with his, his actors. And I love, I love the actors that he works with. I would be interested to, to force Wes Anderson – to um, tell him you can only have uh, five five principal characters in your next movie, and you have to, um, and uh, one of them has to be Idris Elba. I <laughs> mean, <laughs> oh, I think right. I think my I mean I won't go along because but I, uh, my preconception is that I have I have never liked Wes Anderson. I think what I think is it is true that he puts pretty pictures on the screen and that they are recognizable and interesting um, to look at. Um, but it has always felt to me a bit like a sleight of hand, you know, a bit of substance, uh, excuse me, style over substance. And um, I want to pick up on something you said, John, about um, having to turn it off a couple of times, mm-hmm. because I think, you know, a lot of the a lot of what people have written about this is that it's like it's the most Wes Anderson, Wes Anderson movie, you yeah. know, that you said that thing about doubling down to me. Um, and this goes to what Eric said as well, but it, it leans into the fracturedness of his approach to filmmaking, whether it's too many characters or too many stories or even just sort of like smash cuts and quick um, edits and um, fast dialogue and, um, you know, even, even within sentences, bits of vocabulary and, you know, I'm, I'm a vocabulary guy, but it's sort of like um, the, the, everything about it feels um, fractured to me in some ways and so to have this one that is presented as a you know a, 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 um, a new yorker style magazine um it leans into that fracturedness in a way that i think just just makes it makes it even more problematic um and you know i i thought some of the visuals were really interesting um i i actually enjoyed the benicio del toro storyline um a bit but i think ultimately and i i, I would point to the end where um the big revelation of the third story is um the chef who um, deliberately ate poison to in order to, f- to taste a new thing for the first time in, in a long time, right? Which in and of itself is kind of an interesting idea. And I would read, you know, a short story about that or watch a short film about that or whatever. But when I when I put that up against the, the kind of um, subtlety and nuance that pig takes with its approach to food and taste and family and, and tragedy and it just... it it feels like sort of night night and day to me you know it's it's such a loud mm-hmm. fast full movie mm-hmm. um and it, it's it's the sparseness of of yeah. pig for me that, that i preferred it it also feels like a uh, a wes anderson movie that's very much of 2021 right cuz it's it's loud it's fast it's quick the sh- stories are shorter it's kind of like a wes anderson for a tiktok generation that just <laughs> wants to watch things that are mm-hmm. that are fast and i do think you know when the when the characters that are eccentric don't have time to breathe yeah. and become more than their quirks and eccentricities then all they are is their quirks and eccentricities yeah. and that's why i think like the best characters with the 
with the exception of the Benicio del Toro one, because his eccentricities are not verbal. They're more just like, and actually there's a, his eccentricity is his quietness, Mm -hmm. right? That he doesn't really say a lot, that it's all facial expressions. And it almost goes back to like usual suspects era Benicio Mm -hmm. del Toro, where like he's the quirky character in that movie, but he doesn't say a lot. It's just when he does, and he's really good at that. But I think the characters that are built out most are like the Francis McDormand character, the Jeffrey Wright character. And they're because they're the narrators in those vignettes. So you get yeah. more time with them to see beyond, you know, just kind of the the outward presentation of like what about them is offbeat in a way. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted to convince someone who's like a never read, never really delved into a, a New Yorker um issue um <laughs> and wanted to convince them that no actually like you know the new yorker has some fascinating articles and and a pretty interesting perspective this would um not do a good job <laughs> like uh it's it's kind of am- amping up all the all the like preciousness about the new yorker mm-hmm. um and not the not the stories and not the connectivity that you can get from like a great new yorker article or the writing you know yeah. so much so much of the new yorker is that those you know like a new yorker profile done yes. by um you know one of their famous famously good profilers i mean they're just it, the writing matters you know yeah. and this divorces it from that of yeah. necessity if you want to convince people to read the new yorker you just show them the that news that the Instagram thing, the news story that mm-hmm. became with a the guy thought somebody stole his New Yorker and he started posting <laughs> signs in his in his New York apartment, which led to more signs and more signs and mm-hmm. yeah, and then just just for the New Yorker because he wanted that issue. Or you can have him read the um, uh, Jeremy Strong profile. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, speaking of method acting, should we do Lucy and Ricky? <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So being the Ricardos is is by walk and talk guy. Uh, it's the story of the this kind of red scare that uh, Lucille Ball uh, fell into as they were making I Love Lucy, um, and we get uh, we get um, I can't talk. Can you? Can somebody else do <laughs> yeah, this? Yeah, sure. My I'm, my brain does not, is not is not working. Go ahead. It's basically about a week in the filming of an episode of I Love Lucy. Thank you. While Lucille Ball is navigating both the uh, potential outing of her as a communist mm-hmm. because she checked a box once back in the day and also the the potential demise of the marriage because of alleged um affairs that uh Ricky was carrying on. Uh, Ricky yes. is played by Javier Bardem mm-hmm. and uh Lucy is played by Nicole Kidman. Yes. And, and it's just it's basically like Monday, Tuesday, it's five acts, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, mm-hmm. Friday essentially. And it's so it has the Aaron Sorkin like Studio 60 we're filming a show behind yeah. the scenes Hollywood mm-hmm. aspect mixed with um the kind of like marital um problems that they were facing mm-hmm. and, you know has some flashbacks to how they met and and you know the rise of their careers and in particular focusing on um lucille ball's like quest to be a serious actress mm-hmm. um and the way in which her hollywood kind of trajectory led her to i love lucy which then also led her to being um a character or sorry an actor who was a bit more um like forceful Yes. Um, in the way that the filming was done, because she has this constant quest to be proven, to prove to people that she is serious and not just kind of the, you know, the whiny voice and the mm-hmm. comedic actress on 
on TV. So, John, have you felt the same way about Walk and Talk Guy that I have long felt about Wes Anderson? Maybe, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like the 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 thing that every everybody who's who's a huge Aaron Sorkin fan um, references as maybe their uh, analogous Royal Tenenbaums masterpiece is The West Wing. Um, I have a lot of friends and and people who just love The West Wing. I never did that. Sometimes I think maybe I should. But like, um, what's the one with Jeff Daniels? The um, the newsroom <laughs> is like one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life. Okay, well, the new the, uh, to my mind, the newsroom <laughs> is to the French Dispatch. You know, yeah, it's sort yeah. of like peak that person. <laughs> yeah. So, and um, we don't have very much time, but we'll just quick take. Um, uh, what do you think? I'll start. I I think my biggest issue. I tried to put my finger on it with this movie, and I think other people have said it. I just think Nicole Kidman um, to play Lucille Ball. I think she did the dramatic stuff, but I don't think Nicole Kidman is a naturally funny person. So to have a movie where you have Lucille Ball, who is like one of the most charismatic, just f- hilarious screen presence. And have all that humor basically stripped o- away from the portrayal. I I think doomed this this movie. Um, I didn't mind her as much as I expected to, particularly because I had read or heard some takes about how you know people were proposing other just other actors based on what they yeah. looked like and how funny they were. Um, what I I, my, I had two main two principal thoughts. The first one about Nicole Kidman was that um, given that the movie is interested in some of the rockiness with her and Desi and her as Eric mentioned, kind of like forcefulness on in the production aspect of things. Mm-hmm. I I thought Kidman was good at that and that yeah. maybe they wanted her for that because the thing we know Lucy for is her sort of bombast and outlandishness and what they wanted was someone to be able to pull off the drama and seriousness. Mm-hmm. I didn't mind Kidman as, thought, as much as I thought. And the other thing I'll say is... Um, I didn't hear Sorkin as much as I expected to. Mm-hmm. I didn't hear the mm-hmm. right, the, you know, the sort of show offy kind of look at me writing that often, you know, in the newsroom or, or bits of Studio 60 or whatever. He he felt quieter here to me. Yeah, he felt I agree more, with that. More, more like a few good men where it was just like, I mean, if, n- not that well, not that well done, but I, I didn't, it didn't feel overtly Sorkin-y to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I bought the little bit at the end about Lucy M. Home. You know, mm-hmm. um, I thought that was set up really well and how the most famous Desi line that anybody knows, you know, Lucy, I'm home. It was actually a, a sort of, you know, knife stab to her mm-hmm. at the end. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was actually kind of kind of skillful. Eric, what, 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Oh, my God. Yeah, we got to get ready for Crime Talk BK. All right. So, uh, listen, I've always, been a, I've always been a Sorkin fan. I know he's a writer capitalized. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I so I, I dug this. I was fully in, um, you know, I, I know that he like loves to basically show that he's a writer and I mm-hmm. guess maybe it's my own pretension that that kind of resonates with me. And also, I guess I realized I'm a big behind the scenes guy. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I mean, sp- like loved sports night. <laughs> really? I still enjoyed studio 60 mm-hmm. liked this West wing is kind of behind the scenes. So go. yeah, I, I guess I like behind the scenes. Stuff. Yeah. No, I, I, appre- I agree with what you're saying there. I appreciate the process aspects of of this movie and and what it goes into making a tv show and i I, think he does link things together well like dana said there's there's there is good structure to the stories they work for me thank you guys for being here we could do a whole nother hour this (laughs) it's so much fun um stay tuned for crime talk bk 
Um, if you're listening to this on your computer, you can download the app for your phone. It works great. Uh, you can uh, donate if you would like. Uh, go to the uh, RadioFreeBrooklyn.org and hit that green donut donut button. <laughs> uh, we are completely uh, listener-supported. We're doing this all just for the, the love of radio. Um, I'll talk to you all next week. Uh, thanks again, guys. Thank Peace. You. Open Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style. Op, 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 op. Open Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style. Op, 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 op. Open Gangnam Style.